Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to another episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I've got an amazing guest for you today, Mr. Joseph O'Connor. Joseph, welcome to the show. Hi, Al. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And and we're going to be talking about a, a subject that is very passionate to me. I'm a novice when it comes to neuroscience stuff, but listeners, uh, Joseph is not. Uh, Joseph is the author of 19 books, including his most recent book, Coaching the Brain. He is also co-founder of the International Coaching Community, which boasts over 15,000 coaches as members worldwide, and he's founder of the Neuroscience Coaching Center. Whether you're a coach currently being coached, thinking about getting yourself a coach, or just simply curious about how to coach your own brain, there's a book or a service that Joseph offers for you. Now, Joseph, I'm very curious with your background and uh, your knowledge of neuroscience and all of those things that I'm sure we're going to geek out over here in a little bit. When you hear the words responsible leadership, what do they mean to somebody like you with your background? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, um, of which there are libraries and libraries of books about, aren't there? <laughs> When, when you say responsible leadership, um, what I get first of all is responsible, which means responding. It's the ability to respond. So, uh, a responsible leader is someone who is able to and, uh, is sensitive to the situation and the people so that they can respond, um, in a good way, an appropriate way, a, a way that works. Uh, and is flexible in that way as well. So it's not like, you know, I do this. <laughs> when things go wrong, this is what I do, regardless of what it is and, and who's there. That's not responsible, that's inflexible. So it's the ability to respond in a flexible way to other people and what's going on. And then the other part of it, the leadership part, um, it, it's funny really because the words can can mislead us. A leader, of course, has no no validity unless there are people who see them as a leader. A leader can't exist in their own right. No one goes around saying, I'm a leader. Everyone's going to say, well, who do you lead? <laughs> if there's nobody there, they're not a leader. So um, it's about it's about connecting with the people that that want to be with you connecting with them so that um, you serve them so that you can articulate what they want so that you can express their values 
and so that something happens as well. I remember there's a, a story about um, a couple of, of uh, Greek orators back in the day, you know, 2000 years ago, uh, when, when they would uh, fire up their, their people with, with great speeches. And there was one orator um, who, who would give a fantastic speech. And after that, people would go, wow, what an amazing, inspiring speech. That, that guy's just, just an, an amazing leader. And then there was another, another one that when he spoke, people went, Oh, okay. Let's march. In other words, let's move. Let's go do something. And, and in the end, that's got to be a, a important part of leadership too. Yeah. No, I, I love that in depth. I mean, that was, that was great insight there. And I agree with all of it. And I, I love the, the story that you just shared there at the end because it's one, uh, you know, I like to tie a lot of history into the show here, but, uh, you know, it's one where if people are familiar with Civil War history, which you just said there between the Greek orators is the difference between uh, General Grant and General McClellan uh, for the Union. Right. McClellan was was that guy that could give the great speech, get everybody kind of fired up, but he never put them in action, whereas Grant he was, you know, not the best at drill. He showed up kind of unkempt and those sorts of things, but he was a person who could inspire people to action. And and I like that that piece there because I think that's really it, right? Is uh, you made that distinction about uh, leadership and, and followership and, and inspiring people to act. And, you know, there, there's a lot of folks out there that can talk really well. They can send a great message. But it's the rare person that can really inspire somebody to get up from that and, and, and want to make some type of change in their life. And I think that's a key factor in coaching, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's that ability to articulate and connect with other people um, rather, rather than, than kind of be charismatic uh, in themselves. You know, there was, I mean, leadership, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's, it's evolved. Our ideas of, of what a good leader is have evolved amazingly over the last, I don't, well, hundred years, certainly, because it used to be, uh, the kind of archetype of the military leader that people would obey. And then it kind of shifted more to charismatic. Um, and there was, there's a lot of literature about, you know, if you want to be a leader, then develop these qualities of, you know, charisma or communication skills. And that, that's really only looking at one side of the tennis court. You know, you could never understand the game of tennis if you only focus on one side of the court. You have no idea what's happening on the other side. You don't know how the ball comes back. You don't know how it's going to work out. You, you get a distorted view. So I don't think you can ever understand leadership by just qualities of the person designated as leader. You have to understand the game. You have to understand that the people that are involved and, and then, um, then you get, I think, a, a much greater understanding of, of the whole situation of which the leader is, is part. Yeah. No, again, great distinction. And, and I can already tell that this is going to be an amazing conversation here. And we could probably talk for several hours because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm loving it. And, you know, you talked about the history of how we view leadership and what leadership used to mean. And, uh, you know, I think, I think really it only meant that because those were the people with the authority, uh, the people who were there telling them, says like, no, this command and control, like even in the military, uh, you know, I'm a Marine Corps veteran here. 
Yeah. That that command and control piece that most people associate with the military is kind of like the really the fictionalized Hollywood version. Now, yes, there is a time where command and control is necessary uh, to to get something done, but like that's maybe just a few percentage points of military leadership. The, the vast majority, 90, 95% of it is building relationships, getting to know your team members, uh, you know, love, like love is a big piece of military leadership that never gets talked about in Hollywood because, you know, it's kind of a touchy feely kind of subject. And, you know, there was, I'm trying to remember who it was, but there was a general that said, look, nobody's going to get out and, and jump on a grenade for you if they don't love you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what you've just said. It, it feeds into sort of experience just recently for me. I, I've, I haven't been, I'm not military, I haven't been in the in, uh, military, but uh, I met an amazing guy, I spent a couple of days with an amazing guy uh, a few weeks ago who was in the special boat services and had seen service in uh, uh, Iraq and, and Afghanistan and Kosovo. Uh, amazing guy. I mean, just a, a a fully fledged hero, really, in terms of what what he'd done, and what I learned from him are many things I learned from him. But one thing was this: the command and control is just the the it's it's just the shell over the top because those those men, um, those people in action, they're in small units. They exactly as you say they they know that another person would die for them and they would die for another person. And that is what holds them together. And that is what means that's the strongest bond of all. So in terms of, of leadership, it's like everybody's a leader there. Everybody is responsible. Everybody is responding for themselves, for other people and for the whole unit. And that's incredibly powerful. Yes, a hundred percent. And, uh, you know, again, that goes back that that was the, the core tenant of, of the Spartan society was, you know, they, they literally made those guys live together and, and, and form those bonds and, uh, yeah, all through, but to get there. And I think this is another one of those traits. that's never really talked about so much, especially with military leadership, but leadership in general, even though there's been a lot of books written about it, as kind of, you mentioned before, this idea of, of emotional intelligence and, and all that that entails. So I'm really kind of curious to hear when you talk about the importance of emotional intelligence and coaching and in leading others, like what are you, what are you focusing on with those words? Well, yeah. Um, to, to maybe to back up a little bit, when we talk about emotional in, uh, anything emotional, People do tend to to think about uh, uh, maybe some of the some of the, the emotions that we don't like. Uh, go back to the Greeks again. The Greeks had uh, I'm not a Greek scholar, but uh, they did have some good metaphors. Um, they I think it was uh, Plato talked about um, human being as a, like a charioteer, and the charioteer was drawn by two horses. There was one white and one black horse, and the black horse was the emotion represented the emotional part of people. And the white horse was the intellectual, the, the cognitive part. 
And the charioteer job was to try to get these horses to align themselves and go in the right direction, because in that metaphor, it was the black horse, the emotions that was always pulling off to, to one side and, and derailing the chariot for one reason or another. And I think that um, this that kind of metaphor in one way or another has been around ever since, where we kind of think sometimes that, uh, you know, people should be cognitive and, and clear and logical and that's the way to go. And then these emotions just kind of pull you out sometimes and you have to control them in some way. And and that's really the opposite of what goes on. The, the brain, the, the cognition and emotion go together and the energy of emotions is something that we really, really need. Uh, and if it can be channeled constructively, then that is incredible. So it's not about trying to um, be emotionally intelligent in terms of taming the black horse of emotions with the white horse. <laughs> right. It's actually getting the two to work together uh, in order to, you know, head the chariot uh, in the direction that you want to do. So with emotional intelligence, um, and just very briefly, because again, there's libraries about this stuff, but I think it goes into four, really. One is that you need to be aware of your own emotions. You have to be in touch with your own emotions uh, and know what's happening inside you. Because if, if that's just a mystery to you, then <laughs> you're not going to be very good at uh, managing that and, and the energy of that. And uh, that's not going to connect with other people either. So there's self-awareness there to start with. Then there's the ability to guide that emotional energy that, that you're aware of. Um, whether it's uh, anger or fear or happiness or anything like that. There's an energy there that uh, can be constructively moved in any situation. So that management part. And then there's the other side of it, which is to be aware of other people's emotions. You know, you do not want someone to burst into tears before you realise that they're upset. And you certainly don't want someone to take a swing at you uh, before you realise that they're angry. So it's the sensitivity then to other people's emotions. And then finally, the, the skills and ability to deal with other people's emotions uh, at the time, in the situation, in the most constructive way. And I think those are the, if we break down emotional intelligence, uh, I would break them down into those four skills. Yeah, no, that is uh, that is a great breakdown. And, and uh, yeah, you're right, especially starting with the, uh, uh, the know yourself piece. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I, uh, discuss quite a bit is, uh, that introspection and improvement, taking the time to come to grips with those things and what controls you, what triggers you, what, what causes all these various reactions. And then, you know, I like the piece about, you know, making sure you're connecting the dots. Um, you know, I had a friend tell a great story about how he was, uh, in a meeting and he was given this, this presentation and he thinks he's rocking it out. And uh, at the end of it, somebody, you know, during the Q&A period, somebody asked him, you know, wh why are you so mad today? And he's like, I I'm not. And the, the, the person's response was, well, you need to tell your face, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because he had something. And then he finally, you know, started thinking about it. And he realized, you know, yeah, this thing happened and I was mad, but I, I thought I'd put it out of my mind so I could give this presentation. But obviously it was still, you know, c triggering my facial muscles to, to look a little angry during the presentation. And 
And and I think people do that quite a bit, disconnect their emotions with their physical, right? They try. You can't do it, though. Um, but that the anger thing on the face is, is interesting because, of course, the face... Uh, again, a little bit of neuroscience here. The, um, when, when you feel an emotion, um, within one fifth of a second, uh, the signal's gone from the brain to the rest of the body. And that signal can, you know, increase your pulse rate, increase your blood pressure. Maybe it can utilize more glucose in the blood. So you feel more energetic and it changes your face. Uh, it changes your face to, um, a facial expression of that emotion, let's say anger. And it, ha- you can't control it. It happens in a fifth of a second. Uh, once you are aware of it, of course, you can then blank it out. But, uh, there's some very, um, very reliable, uh, signals of anger in the face, um, which, uh, you know, can be spotted if, if, again, if you're, if you're sensitive to other people, uh, uh the face, the body language, the voice tone, um, the way that people talk, that people communicate in so many different ways, but we pay so much attention to the words that we tend, we tend to lose the other 80% of the communication, body language, voice tone, verbal style, and facial expression. That's all part of the communication. So absolutely, um, your, your emotions, your feelings are going to leak out into your body um, and you can't stop them. And you shouldn't try and stop them. You should acknowledge them and then use them in some way. And if someone's, you know, in your example, maybe if someone's angry at the time, um, that self-awareness perhaps would allow them to say something like to, to their group, you know, I'm feeling a bit angry at the moment because of something that's happened, but I'm, I'm going to make, I'm going to construct, I'm going to make sure, get that, that energy and make it constructive in, in what I'm going to say here. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, well, and, and I think that's, uh, so I love you talking about the kind of the micro expressions there. I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, Paul Ekman's work and, and uh, some of those things. And I think that's something a lot of people do need to be aware of is is what, what uh, Joseph just said there is how quickly that happens. And, you know, a lot of times when you're in a conversation, you start feeling like uneasy or you start feeling, you know, maybe like you can't trust this person or that you can trust that person. It's usually because you've picked up on some of those micro expressions without even realizing it your, yourself uh, because yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've started with uh, under not Paul Ekman himself, but uh, under that methodology and it's really fascinating those micro expressions. And if you pair that micro expressions, just very, very, very quick expressions of emotion that flit across the face, um, which, which you can see if you're paying attention in other people, but um, because we are so empathic, human beings are so empathic, and we have these mirror neurons, as it were, whereby we unconsciously mirror what we see in other people, it's quite possible that if someone is, uh, is angry and has like expressions of anger in their face, we could mirror those with our mirror neurons and we can start feeling angry. And then you, start, you have to start saying, you know, whose anger is this? Is it me? <laughs> That's funny, you know. I started talking with this person. I suddenly feel angry. Why? Why is that? Right. Um, so it's it's a you know human beings are so connected and so empathic in many ways that we are affected by other people as well without really knowing that sometimes, and we affect other people ourselves through our moods too. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And I think that's the 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 big reason why it is okay 
to let people know, you know, hey, I'm having a bad day right now. I'm, I'm going to be grouchy. I'm going to be grumpy. It's not you. It's I'm dealing with some stuff here. So please, you know, grant me a little grace today. And if you have that conversation up front, it goes a long ways to kind of not eliminating, but reducing that mirroring effect a little bit, right? Absolutely. It, it's, uh, it, go, it does very well. And, and also it helps you because instead of then trying to bottle up all your feelings, um, you've kind of put them out there. You go, <laughs> you know, you're not trying to hide anything anymore. It's like, look, <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit upset here, you know, and, and let's go with it. And then people go, oh, yeah, okay. And then you go, well, now it's out in the open. I don't have to hide it anymore. I don't have to, to spend a lot of energy to hide that. Um, just it made me think of uh, many years ago, I was a professional guitarist, classical guitarist. I used to give concerts, uh, solo classical guitar concerts in front of uh, auditoriums of people. And of course, in that situation, you get nervous, you get nervous like crazy. Um, and what, uh, what one very good way to help with that uh, for me and for musicians and, and uh, artists in that situation is to right at the start go, yeah, I feel anxious. My God, I feel really nervous. Um, and that's okay because there's an energy there that I can use. What doesn't work is to try and repress that, to try and push it down, go, no, no, I'm not going to feel nervous. I'm going to push this down. Go, from neuroscience research that when you try to push down an emotion, doesn't work, just makes it worse, actually. So, you know, not only does it not work, um, but it makes things yeah. worse. And I think, you know, the same principle applies uh, when you're presenting or anything like that. You, you acknowledge your your feelings and um, then if if appropriate, you, you say at the time to, to other people, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a bit, you know, whatever it is, and it gets it out in the open and it, it helps that that communication yeah no 100 percent. yeah and to, to to joseph's point there go tell somebody who's angry that they need to calm down and see how well that goes right um but yeah and and so again folks you know we haven't necessarily referenced this stuff directly but a lot of this stuff that we've been talking about here maybe all of it um is within uh joseph's book coaching the brain practical applications of neuroscience to coaching um, and you talk about something in the book, you know, fairly early on that, uh, you know, at least here in, in the States, uh, was kind of a buzzword for quite a while. And, and that's neuroplasticity. Uh, so if you could, like, describe really what neuroplasticity is and why it's one of those uh, important pieces of this, this puzzle. Well, neuroplasticity is, is the ability of the, the brain to rewire itself. Uh, in response to experience. So it's basically the way that we learn. Um, and a good way of thinking about it, for me anyway, is that the brain is an organ that, that converts experience into nervous tissue. Right? And then the nervous tissue of the brain, in turn, the connections, the new connections that are made, uh, help us then to continue out into the world in a different way to learn and to have new and hopefully better experiences. So basically what we're doing all the time is we're re rewiring our brain because when the brain is a verb, really, I mean, human beings are verbs. <laughs> we're, we're always changing all the time. So what's happening as we move through the world is that um, 
the nerve cells in our brain are making different connections all the time. And when these connections are repeated and reinforced, then we get, you know, the habitual thinking, the habitual actions that come from that. So that's the, that's what neuroplasticity is. It's the, the brain is always learning. It's always changing itself in response to experience. And the experience that it changes itself to in response to will be strongly emotional experience, certainly. Experiences that are repeated over and over again. That's how we learn to do things. We make habits of them to get to play tennis better or to play the guitar better. Uh, and what we pay attention to. And we all know that if we pay attention to something and just do it a few times, it's going, we're going to remember it and we're going to do it much more easily than if we just repeat it, you know, 50 times without really paying attention and without thinking. So in terms of building up habits uh, of what, how we want to think and how we want to act, it's a really important principle. And it's also very important too that to remember that the brain doesn't discriminate between the, the value of the things that, that we learn. In other words, if you repeat something over and over again and pay attention to it, that is what you will remember. That is what you'll get to be good at. That's what will connect in your brain. And that's what will form a habit. And that goes for playing tennis. It goes for practicing the guitar. It goes for your thoughts as well. So if you are constantly saying to yourself, you know, oh, I'm not very good at this. I'm really don't know what I'm doing here. I'm not a good leader, you know, Ooh. If you keep doing that, that's what your brain will reinforce through neuroplasticity. It's the kind of dark side of neuroplasticity. And the brain doesn't discriminate between the thoughts. So in this sense, we have a choice always in terms of what sort of habits of thinking do we want to develop in ourselves that are going to be helpful for us and helpful for others. Yeah, no, that is, uh, that's a good breakdown there. And, you know, one of the, I think one of the things that really kind of highlighted it for me and, and, uh, you know, I hate to make assumptions here, but, uh, you know, let me ask, you're, are you familiar with the, uh, kind of the brain research that's been done with, uh, the, the London cab drivers? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. The knowledge. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, for those who aren't familiar and I'll let Joseph fill in the gaps here, but like the short version of the story is, you know, as they're training for the exam, and I don't know if this has changed uh, with, you know, kind of the prevalence of GPS, but, you know, there were no GPSs when, uh, or they were just starting to come into favor when this was done, but the, they're, they had to memorize the streets of London, especially around a, a certain area. And when they were looking at the brains, like their, their hippocampus would, would grow. And then they tracked a bunch of these folks uh, over their career and then post-career. And then as they moved away from that and didn't have to use that knowledge, the hippocampus started to kind of shrink back to quote unquote normal. Uh, I think that's a kind of real quick summary there, but I'm just curious if you have anything else to add or pick from that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a classic piece of research because London is a, very very big complex city and to be a black cab driver you have to i'm not sure if you still have to um but there's an incredible amount of of uh, you you had to be able to find your way around london basically so you had to memorize the streets it was called the knowledge 
Right. And, um, yeah, they, they did, uh, they did the experiments with those cab drivers and they found that the hippocampus, which is a small area of the brain that, uh, codes memory actually got bigger, uh, so that there was, there was more neurons actually making more neurons in the hippocampus when they learned that intensely. Afterwards, um, I don't know the follow-up, but then maybe it did go back. And uh, I mean, this is really quite recent in a sense, in scientific terms, because even uh, 20 years ago or so, um, the received knowledge was you don't grow new nerve cells, right? Right. Your whole component of nerve cells when you're born, that's it. You know, you better make use of that. They just keep dying off. And that's absolutely not true. Now we know that uh, we do make not only make new nerve cells, uh, but more importantly, we make we're making new connections with the nerve cells that we have. And in that sense, in that way, it's actually that's actually more important because um, you know we have something like eighty six billion nerve cells with trillions and quadrillions of connections, and it's the connections that matter. You know, if you have a, a million nerve cells that aren't connected, they can't really do very much. If you have two million, they still can't do very much. But if they're all starting to connect and wire up and, and, and uh, in, a, in a sense, be creative, because when you connect two things that haven't been connected before, that's part of creativity. Then you get, you know, you get learning and you, you get knowledge, wisdom, memory and everything else. So, yeah, the, the brain is an amazing, an amazing organ. Yeah, no, 100 percent. Go ahead. You know, you can see this happening in the brain as a metaphor for what happens in our own learning and experience. Sorry. No, no, that's that's good. There, you know, you're you're 100 right, and especially that part about uh, nerve generation and regeneration and, and regrowth of uh, uh, friends with the gentleman uh, John Peck. Um, he's a Marine Corps veteran. He was a quadruple uh, amputee, uh, but he became the first. Uh, at least here in the States, I think maybe the world, uh, to get a double arm transplant. And it was basically from the elbow down. And watching his journey and watch that unfold has been kind of great because, you know, when it first happened, you know, essentially he was able to kind of move his shoulder and, you know, kind of like sling the arm around to get it to move. Uh, but now he's got, you know, it's still restricted because it's not you know, what he was born with, but he can, you know, open jars and things like that. But remember recently he just posted uh, something on, on social media. This is maybe a few months, maybe a year ago. Thanks to COVID time has no meaning anymore. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's like, I, I burnt my arm today and I felt it. And, you know, that's one of those things that like most of us, you know, when we get a burn, it's like, oh man, this is terrible. But for him, because it's, it's the first time he had felt the arm, something happened to it. Like it was just, he was so happy about burning his arm. And uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see what we, we are finding out about the nervous system more and more every day and how resilient it really is. Absolutely. That's a great, that's a great story. It's the, another part of neuroplasticity because, you know, when we, when we lose uh, the ability of parts of our body, then that the brain, the part of the brain that, that was, uh, used in that part of the body doesn't doesn't just die off it doesn't just sit around it looks for something else to do so um, you know for example if uh, you lose sight then the the, the part of the brain used to process visual images starts to get used in other senses so it's well known that uh, 
if, if you're blind, then you, your sense of hearing and smell and other senses will be vastly enhanced. And in, in, in the same way, you know, the, the brain is there just waiting to be used um, in, in, whatever, in whatever there is. So I think that's a, that's a really great story about, uh, about your friend there. Yeah. The, how the brain, you know, suddenly, yes, you can feel. <laughs> it's connected again. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and I think that's the, the thing that, you know, that, that example there, and I, I really didn't put this together until, you know, we were just talking about it here, but it was kind of smacking me in the face the whole time. You know, I think that's the thing that we see a lot in, in organizations and leadership, right? When, when an organization is exposed to bad leadership for so long, uh, or bad leaders for so long, you know, the organization starts to kind of get kind of numb, like this is just the way things are supposed to be. And then when you get somebody that comes in that, that has, you know, this connectivity, that has the emotional intelligence, that has the leadership skills to be a good leader, you know, the, the organization kind of gets this this kind of spasm, if you will, like, oh, my gosh, I haven't experienced good leadership in forever. And they almost don't know how to act, do they? Mm, mm. That's right. It's you know you see it happen in organisations, don't you? Where, where depending on the the leadership and the leaders, um, they can do well, and then maybe it goes down. And people, we're we're amazingly adaptable. Human beings are incredibly adaptable, and we will adapt to whatever is there. So if there's not good leadership, the organisation goes down. People get used to it, and it's like, yeah, well, this is the way things are. It's fine, you know. And then suddenly something happens. There's a good leader. There's good leadership. Things go up. Initially, there's there's a bit of resistance usually because oh, this is change, and uh, we don't we tend to have a big status quo bias. Uh, we tend to like what we have, regardless of what it is, what we what we've grown used to. Uh, we get comfortable there. We don't like to change in either direction. Um, but then once we do change, and the new status quo becomes. You know, invigorated and, and um, clear and strong and moving forward, then we're adapted to that. And, you know, who knows in, in the end um, what's possible? You know, just because you can't touch the ceiling, um, you know, who knows where the ceiling is if you can't touch it? Who knows how great you can be if you've never got there? You just keep moving up. Uh, and that's why the, the best leaders are always the ones that, that give people the most space where they go, look, you know, you haven't touched your ceiling yet. Come on, you can you can stretch just that little bit higher, and it's very much in the mind and brain. And that's something that uh, um, the the guy that I was talking to, my friend, special boat services, said. Um, he said uh, when he, talking about the incredible um, physical endurance tests that they had to do, marches for miles and miles in the cold and rain and carrying. A huge packs on their back and uh, his his commanding officer said pointed to his legs he said those will give way when and then he pointed to his head that gives way mm -hmm. words you know it's the it's the brain it's the mind that that goes first and the legs follow it's not that the legs give out and then the brain follows so it's like if, if you have that mindset there you can do far far more than, than what you think. And I think that's, you know, when you talk about responsible leadership, um, of being able to inspire people to say, look, you haven't reached your best yet. 
you don't know what that is just just see if you can stretch that a little bit higher see if you can touch the ceiling then yeah no that is again that is an extremely valuable point because it is a hundred percent hundred percent true and and that goes uh, kind of into uh, something else you talk about in the book, which uh, I love and I think is a topic that more people need to at least have a, a general understanding of. And that is, you know, mental models, these these concepts of where those limits are or how we view people or how we view, uh, you know, certain groups. And, and basically, these mental models are built about everything around us, aren't they? Mm, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it's learning from experience. We we we're born we know nothing about the world we learn from other people and and from you know going around having different experiences and if our environment uh, a good one not representative and if the people around us early on are not representative generally then we can learn some strange things and we can get some mental models about how the world is and how people are which um are not representative and, and can lead us astray. So, you know, mental model sounds a bit posh, but it's basically an idea of how the world works. Uh, if I do this, then this will happen. You know, I have a mental model of gravity, for example. Right. I believe in very strongly because my experience is that if I were to step out of this window, I would, I would fall a couple of yards and hurt myself. You know, and, and I've had experience of that. Uh, many times. So I believe in gravity. I act as if gravity is true. And I'm not going to do stuff that I believe is going to hurt myself because of gravity. And other mental models work exactly the same way, you know, uh, in terms of trusting other people, in terms of the sort of people that you think you are, the sort of people that you think other people are. You think, I'm not going to do this because I think I'll get hurt, and therefore you don't do it. And that mental model constrains you. Now, you know, I'm kind of making a little bit of a joke here in terms of gravity. But I'll sometimes ask my clients, you know, uh, with a with an idea that they have, okay, in terms of one to ten, where one is I don't believe it, and ten is I totally believe it. Do you believe in gravity? They go, absolutely, you know, that gives a ten. Now, in terms of that, how much do you believe that, you know, you're not very good at this, or your boss is a jerk, or whatever it might be? And then they start thinking because then they've got a comparison against another mental model that they really do believe in. And then that starts to, to loosen up some of the, the limiting mental models that, uh, that can, people can have that are stopping them from, from reaching their full potential. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I think that piece there is, is really great because, you know, those comparatives and, and I think people go through life mostly unaware how, their surroundings influence them, right? You know, we talk about, uh, you know, we can talk about diversity and inclusion and, and racism and sexism. A lot of this stuff happens because of, you know, what you're exposed to. Like you just mentioned, the the books you read, the shows you watch, the the people you listen to, the, the role models you accept. And, uh, you know, going back to neuroplasticity, you can really kind of reconstruct those models just by changing your environment, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one thing I do and I get all my clients to do is to learn something new every three months, some new subject, you know, something that they, they don't know anything about. Um, so, you know, there's, I think we all have something where you go, you know, when, when I've just got a bit of time, when I've got a bit of free time, I'm going to learn about, 
<laughs> whatever it is, military history, Japanese history, uh, uh, Greek calligraphy or whatever. Um, and th- this is something that I, I, I certainly try and do and I get up, try and get other people to do because when you learn something new, it does take you out of, of your fixed little confirmation bias because that's the other thing the brain does. We get confirmation bias. We tend to notice the stuff that reinforces our existing ideas and we tend not to notice, ignore or argue against the stuff that goes against our ideas. So we like to keep in this little bubble of of certainty and uh, safety. And, you know, that's, that you can understand that because as human beings, we need to be able to predict uh, how the world's going to work. You know, that's really important to us. We can't be safe otherwise. We value very much our ability to predict. You can imagine that if gravity didn't work uh, every other day, or you didn't know what days gravity would work and what days it didn't work, uh, life would be extremely dangerous. So in the same way, we like to have a kind of certainty that we can, even if bad things happen, we can at least predict them. And this is what basically what the brain tries to do with its mental models, our ideas. If I do this, then this will happen. So I can do this or I can't do this. So I think it helps to try to always expand our knowledge and go into uh, places and situations and subjects that we don't know anything about. And it can give us completely new perspectives on, uh, on anything. You know, I'm sure that uh, any, any leader who took a look at, for example, um, Japanese history of the samurai and the leadership in the, the 500 years ago in Japan would get some very interesting insights from leadership that perhaps they could start to play with a little bit in terms of what they're doing in a 21st century multinational company. Yeah, no, 100%. A hundred percent. Yeah, I've, I've talked. It's funny you mentioned that one. And, and I don't know if you, you've seen or listened to that episode, but I actually use that exact uh, example. Uh, Miyamoto Masashi's Book of Five Rings and uh, where he talks about the way of the master carpenter. And I think that is a an extremely valid lesson uh, today. And kind of going back to this piece here, uh, you know, I won't cite all the research because I've, I've cited on here before, but. Uh, you know, there was a very large piece of research done talking about leadership promotion and leadership development and identified there's about a 10 to 12 year gap from the time somebody's promoted into a leadership role uh, before they get some type of professional leadership development. And that entire time frame, they're learning from people on the job. They're developing the mental models based off of those people's mental models. And so if you've got bad leadership, that's how it perpetuates through an organization is by letting bad leaders teach the next generation of leaders. <laughs> and, and the same thing with good leadership, right? If you've got good leaders, it's not such a terrible thing to have those folks teach, but you can really disrupt those, those mental models and, and change leadership by doing the things that, that Joseph is talking about here, uh, embracing neuroscience, all that it entails, um, and, and changing how we think about thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, but organizations do expect executives and leaders just to hit the ground running and, and, and be off and, and, you know, be an incredible leader right from the start. And, and human beings don't really work like that. They, they need to reflect. They need to learn. They need different experiences. This is why 
you know, a coach, a leadership coach, right from the start is such a such a good idea and can be so helpful and, and really accelerate um, a leader's ability to learn and reflect from their experience. So abso- absolutely, it's, it's sometimes we expect, uh, you know, too much from, from people and, and don't, don't give them the, the opportunities and the, the help that they need. Well, folks, we've been sitting here for closing in on on getting close to about 45 minutes or so here with Joseph. And uh, I want to remind you all uh, that the book that we've been kind of using as a backdrop for most of this conversation uh, is Coaching the Brain, Practical Applications of Neuroscience to Coaching. And, uh, you know, like I do with all my guest books here, I, I highly recommend you go grab a copy of this book. Uh, there's a lot of great information in there. There's a lot of this stuff that we've talked about here that uh, Joseph does a great job of explaining and guiding you through in the book of why this stuff is important to you and your leadership development uh, journey and and those who follow you in, in, in building a better followership. Neuroscience is extremely important. We can't get away from it. And uh, Joseph, you've done a great job of writing this book as kind of a, uh, a primer, if you will, of, of how to understand neuroscience and coaching uh, quite a bit better. So, so thank you for writing this book. Thanks, Earl. It's kind of um, owner's manual for the brain. I love it. We get issued with one of those. We should. That'd be nice if we did. But, uh, well, Joseph, before we uh, before we close out this conversation here, uh, you know, we talked about a lot of great stuff here, but I'm just kind of curious. Is there anything we didn't get a chance to touch on uh, that you want to leave listeners with before we go? Um, I'm, I'm tempted to, to just try and balance a little bit. Um, I think, you know, we talk about leadership and we talk about uh, affirmation, you know, and doing things. But I think equally, it's really important to know when to say no, um, to set boundaries. Uh, it's not all about, oh, yes, you know, everything's great. Yes, do this. Yes, do this. It's sometimes it's the boundaries that, that allow you the freedom um, and the, the, the ability within the space that you have uh, to, to actually to be your best. I don't know if you've seen the film um, Scent of a Woman with Al Pacino. It's a great film. Uh, some years ago now, about 20 years ago, but basically right. Al Pacino plays a, a guy who's blind and um, he's going to be dancing with a beautiful girl on the dance floor. And the first thing he asks is to his friend is, can you give me the dimensions of the dance floor? You know, how big is the dance floor? So then he knows, and he's blind, that uh, he has a certain area to work in. And then he can work in that with complete freedom and confidence which he couldn't do if he was afraid all the time of, of falling off the edge of the dance floor. So I think in the same way, it's important to have our boundaries, very clear boundaries of what we're prepared to do and what we're not prepared to do. And within those boundaries, then we have uh, a wonderful responsibility and freedom. So I just wanted to say that I think is important too. Yeah, no, that is that is outstanding advice. And I think my listeners, you know, they've heard me share this quote before, but what you were saying there, uh, great reference. I haven't seen the movie in a while, but I have seen the movie and, and I'd forgot all about that scene. But, uh, you know, I like that idea of boundaries. It reminds me of the old uh, General Patton quote of uh, don't tell people what to do, tell people what needs to get done and get out of their way and let them dazzle you with their brilliance. 
Uh, and it, it's kind of the same thing to find those boundaries and let people, like you just said, have the freedom to move about, have the freedom to kind of innovate and, and think for themselves and develop those cognitive muscles without, uh, you know, kind of hammering them into this is how it has to be done. Uh, I like that. Uh, I like that as a kind of a closing thought. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, folks want to find out more about you. They're going to go grab a copy of the book. Um, you know, they, they want to find out more about your, your coaching services, all that great stuff about Joseph O'Connor. Uh, what's a great place for them to go? Well, they can, uh, contact me through LinkedIn, um, is, is a good place. And, uh, the website is coachingthebrain.com. Very easy to remember. And, uh, you know, um, contact me through that as well, coachingthebrain.com. All right. I love it. And folks, as always, this stuff's going to be in the show notes. So it's just a, a click of the link away and you'll have uh, access to all that great information. Uh, Joseph, again, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with me and my listeners today and share all of your knowledge. And, uh, you know, I really believe that we've at least opened up some eyes into the, the value and the importance of neuroscience. So, again, thank you very much for being a guest on the Responsible Leadership Podcast today. Well, thanks, Alice. It's been a pleasure. Great conversation. Many thanks. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadershipphalanx.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big home. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Electric acid.